Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Don M. Huber. He's a professor emeritus at Purdue University. He was a professor of plant pathology uh, there. He's been doing agricultural research for 50 plus years, which is amazing. And I wanted to talk to him about his work and his life. So, Don, thank you for coming. Oh, Richard, it's a privilege to be here. Well, tell me, what, what got you interested in uh, in agriculture, you know, so many years ago? And then I'll ask you some other questions, but go ahead. What's your background like? Well, I grew up on a dairy farm and have a great appreciation for the importance of being able to put my feet under the, the dinner table, but also the the work and effort that's required to, to do that. And so when I went to college, I was looking for a job part-time to help support my college education. And one of those jobs that I found was working in uh, a laboratory for the plant pathology department. I wasn't really aware of what that word meant or those two words meant for plant disease earlier and all that it encompassed, but as a result of working there, that became a vehicle for me to base my career on. I'd always questioned uh, why crop rotation had such a dynamic effect on plant diseases and our farm situation and found that plant pathology was an area that would give me the insights into that dynamic interaction of the ecology and pathogens and our crop production systems, uh, where I could perhaps make a contribution in that area. Were the plants that you've been studying, are they the traditional farm crops, like corn, soy, and stuff like that? Or what kind of plants have you worked with? Uh, Most of my career was with uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, citrus, some of those, some of the other crops. But then uh, also later in my career, got involved in some of the tropical crops. I do a lot of international uh, consulting so that uh, bananas, sugarcane, Brazil nuts, other uh, other crops, pecans, and, and others all became uh, a part of that because the principles of, that are involved in plant pathology and disease control 
really apply across all crops. Um, okay. So, what, what were some of the um, you know the, the crops that really were interesting to you? Like they presented really unique challenges or strange pathologies. Which ones come to mind? Well, I think with all of them, uh, we have unique aspects. One of the uh, areas of emphasis that I've focused on has been the role of nutrition and disease control and also disease causation, because many of our disease-causing organisms cause disease by creating a a nutrient-deficient condition in the plant, which shuts down the defense mechanism, the resistance mechanisms of the plant, and makes it susceptible then to the uh, ingress of of the pathogen. It'd be very similar to what we find with uh, vitamin D with COVID, that if your vitamin D is deficient, you're very highly susceptible to the COVID virus. Well, if you're if a plant is deficient in manganese, if it's a rice plant, it'd be much more uh, susceptible to uh, rice blast and root rot, uh, wheat uh, to the take-all okay. disease, which is a root and crown disease. So we see many of those same parallel situations. So are there two main mechanisms by which plants experience disease? I guess one is that from soil or other environmental conditions, um, a deficiency is created and then a, a pathogen opportunistically infects the plant. And I guess maybe the other method would be a pathogen is somehow able to breach the plant's defenses. And because of it being there, it sets up a deficiency and a pathology. Oh, we see both of those. Many of our pathogens, like the rice blast pathogen fungus, are a take-all fungus. The uh, Goss's wilt bacterium on corn or even the xylella diseases on many crops all are able to infect those crops and establish themselves because they create uh, nutrient deficiency to start with. So that, And that nutrient deficiency is very critical for resistance of the plants to those diseases. And uh, by creating that deficiency then the pathogen uh, doesn't have any resistance to uh, further damaging the crop. If we maintain the full nutrient sufficiency, the plants would be quite resistant to all of those diseases, and we wouldn't require a fungicide or bactericide in those areas because the plant and its normal metabolism would be able to produce the compounds that would either inhibit the pathogen or would protect it physically, as we see in many of these conditions, to protect it from the disease. Okay. Which type of disease mechanism is easier to, to fix? You know, if, uh, I guess to look at the soil, look at the nutrients, look at the environment that the plants are in, make sure they're not missing out on any you know, vitamins or enzymes or bacteria that they need. Is that easier to do or is it is it easier than once a plant is sick you know, to identify the pathogen and the mechanism and then help the plant, you know, bring it back to life, which oh, is the easier path. Uh, we, we become used to just, uh, kind of looking at silver bullet for disease control. And that would be an, uh, an example would be just using a fungicide or a bactericide. Problem is that most of our chemical controls also rely on the resistance of the plant, on the defenses of the plant. And those are all physiologically Determined 
And in order to maintain full nutrient deficiency, you also have to have a healthy soil because our nutrients are available in different farms and different uh, quantities in the soil. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of involvement. So when we're looking at disease control, we're really looking at the interaction of, of the plant, uh, its resistance or its susceptibility, that genetic potential that it has to, for the physiological resistance. We're looking at the environment in providing those nutrients and also biological controls, other organisms that will help control our pathogens. And then the uh, pathogen, our uh, disease-causing agent itself and its ecology. And it's the relationship of these three factors that are really going to determine whether we have severe disease or no disease. And uh, in order to really address the disease situation, we need to understand the role of all three of those components in this uh, career or this, this process we call farming, which is managing that ecology. And it's the interaction of those three factors, again, that are going to determine not only the yield and quality of the crop, but also the ability of, of that crop to defend itself against. How do plants tend to experience pathology? Like what are some of the, the major predominant ways? And I'm sure it depends on the plant, but you know, what have you seen are the major factors causing pathology? Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. Well, you have root rots, you have vascular wilts, you have leaf spots, a number of different, you have just general rotting of the plant, maceration by the digestion by the pathogens. So there are a number of uh, different uh, mechanisms that a disease organism might employ. And there are also uh, various resistance mechanisms. It may be an active or a passive mechanism of resistance to those particular diseases. Uh, Most bacteria require a wound or a natural opening. In contrast, uh, uh, you have uh, a fungus which is able to directly penetrate and enter into the plant and that disease area with viruses. Uh, you have insects which uh, will place the uh, virus within the, the, the plant cell where it can function, where the virus wouldn't be able to penetrate on its own. Okay, um, but uh, factors that are either deliberately or inadvertently caused by the farmers themselves, what would that look like? You know, what, how do farmers go wrong and unintentionally hurt their crops and their yields? Or is enough known where that really doesn't happen? Sometimes uh, 
a farmer does it inadvertently because he's trying to improve his overall production and he's not as aware of some of the genetic modifications that are that have been placed in some of our uh, crops for instance uh, with the genetically engineered crops uh, corn and soybeans and alfalfa and number of other crops that we have cotton uh, another example there and alfalfa but uh, in the process of genetic engineering we've increased disease susceptibility so that farmer may select uh, a new variety for herbicide resistance or insect resistance uh, based on its uh, being genetically engineered for those characteristics. But in that engineering process, they may have become very susceptible to Doss's wilt, a bacterial disease, for instance, on corn that costs us about a million or a billion dollars a year or another disease that didn't exist before uh, Roundup Ready soybeans were uh, introduced, and that's sudden death syndrome. And it took many years for us, uh, 10 or 12 years, before we really recognized and understood uh, what the causal relationship of sudden death syndrome was to the genetically engineered Roundup Ready soybeans. And that disease, again, didn't exist before uh, Roundup Ready soybeans were introduced because the environment and the genetics of the plant were such that in the wild farm or the uh, conventional farm were uh, very tolerant and very resistant to the fungus that causes sudden death syndrome. Several researchers have recently shown that we go in with a seed treatment with the nutrients, magnesium and manganese, that we can eliminate sudden death syndrome. Well, you say, well, what's the relationship to the herbicide? The uh, glyphosate or the Roundup uh, herbicide is a very strong mineral chelator that reduces the availability of both manganese and magnesium, several other elements also that are essential for plant growth. So when the Roundup is applied to the plant, it induces a nutrient deficiency for those two very critical nutrients. And in order to reduce that, in order to use the technology, we need to recognize that the technology has both reduced the resistance of the plant and also increase the virulence of, of the pathogen. Well, the pathogen's virulence is also involved in, in tying up those two nutrients to make the plant more deficient. And then with the herbicides application as a strong mineral chelator to immobilize those nutrients when the pathogen's present, which it is in most of our soils, you have an ideal situation for a very severe disease. And so on the average, uh, we will lose about a billion dollars worth of soybeans a year uh, to sudden death syndrome. And yet recently now we've come to recognize that if we, we maintain the nutrient sufficiency of, of the crop to compensate for that herbicide, 
chelation and mobilization. Then we can use the technology and capitalize on, on its benefits without taking the 12 to 16% yield reduction that we used to see quite regularly with the genetically engineered crops compared with their parent variety. Yeah, you mentioned um, uh, crop rotation is having a surprisingly good effect on plant growth. Um, can you talk about that for a minute or two? What, when was that first contemplated and what kind of rotations work versus don't work and why? Well, crop rotation has been a standard recommendation for a number of factors for probably centuries. Uh, we used to have the old Rothamsted England crop rotation sequence of five years between susceptible crops or eight years, depending on what the pathogen was with uh, the idea that if you had uh, different crops growing, that you would have different susceptibilities to the different pathogens. And so no pathogen would have an opportunity to build up to damaging proportions in that kind of a situation. We used to have uh, a diversified agriculture, which promoted the diversification of our crop rotation because we were meeting different needs of in the production capacity. So we had alfalfa, we had a forage, we had uh, a cereal grain and corn uh, silage and different crops as well as the, the commodity crops that would be marketed and sold uh, off the farm. And we also used crop rotation for weed control. And then uh, a very important aspect of that crop rotation is also uh, involved in nutrient availability. You keep a very dynamic soil biology so that your nutrients are cycling uh, and they go from the organic form of the nutrient to the inorganic so that you go from from a non-available to an available farm, or it's the organisms in the soil that, that change the valence state of many of our nutrients. Iron and manganese, for instance, uh, can only be absorbed in uh, a reduced form, in a low-valence farm, so that uh, in soil, under many conditions, they, they will occur as in a high-valence form, and that needs to be reduced, and that can be done uh, biologically by soil organisms. So when we rotate our crops, we also are, in a sense, rotating many of those microorganisms to influence not just the pathogen, but also the nutrient status of the plant. But weed control, disease control, and nutrient availability are the three primary uh, recommendations or reasons for recommending crop rotation with the GMO crops, corn and, and uh, soybeans. We've gone pretty much to a very short crop rotation or even a monoculture on uh, corn so that we lose some of those other benefits for disease control and for uh, insect and other pest control. When we have the monocrop system, it has some other advantages in giving us an opportunity to build up some natural biocontrols where we're not rotating quite as frequently, but it's a balancing 
process and requires then a little different approach to look at the nutrient, look at the plant needs under each of those conditions differently than when we used to look at it in our conventional agricultural settings. With crop rotation, the microbiome, well, I guess I'll call it the microbial constituents in the soil. When you plant a given crop in a field, let's say corn for a season, I would think over that season, all the microbes in the soil would adjust to be, you know, commensal with the corn and also pathogens would come in. And then if you plant corn again the next year, the soil, I guess, would be, you know, already customized essentially to the corn in both good and bad ways. But if you rotated crops, now the microbes there, you know, would have to change over because they would need to form a relationship with the new plants that are there. So what does that dynamic look like? Well, that is is a condition you have that microbiome, as we refer to it, that's established with each crop and uh, somewhat unique, but also it doesn't mean that the organisms just drop out of existence. They can uh, be dormant or they can, uh, many of those organisms adapt to the new environment from the root exudates of a, of a plant that uh, might be growing. So there's some changing there, but it does, uh, as you say, give an opportunity for that microbiome to be adjusted and enhanced with the subsequent crop. Now, what we've done uh, to minimize some of those benefits is we've reduced tillage in many of our soils for erosion control. And consequently, where we used to have plowing and turning the soil over and stirring the soil up to give us distribution of nutrients in the soil and a little more oxygen and aeration in our soil systems than we uh, have today, that also greatly influenced the disease pressure. So we're leaving a lot of residue on the surface, so we may have a very small, very limited disease And a current crop that then has had an opportunity to build up where we have all of the residue left on the soil surface for the subsequent crop so that we get earlier infection and much more severe infection with the higher populations of the pathogens in our uh, no-till versus a conventional till type of an environment. We can compensate for that through nutrition again and through some of our other practices. We have a very large toolbox with a lot of uh, tools in it and and part of that managing of the ecology is uh, recognizing the effectiveness of those different tools and crop rotation being one, tillage for uh, uh, weed control as well as uh, nutrient distribution and and that can all be tools that we can use. We don't need to use them all the time or uh, just concentrated. And with cover cropping, we can actually replicate some of the effects of many of the effects of crop rotation while we're growing a primary crop. We'll have do some cover cropping and intercropping in that process without having to move away from an economic crop to get it an effect from what would otherwise have, what that we could accomplish with crop rotation that I, that we can now do it all together on it and have 
that mixed microbiome from an organism standpoint. Very good. What, so what are some of the new, I don't know, methodologies to slow or control disease? Is it coming from, again, things like Roundup Ready, you know, where the, the, the crops are genetically modified themselves so that less pesticides are used? Or you know, where is some of the new innovation in crop growth? Well, uh, genetic resistance has always been our preferred means of disease control. And uh, for many diseases, that's a fully effective control for us. So that, you know, when I served as chairman of the National Plant Disease Recovery Program for invasive diseases and new diseases that were, would be, could be introduced, that uh, we would look at those. But our first and our priority for defense against those was genetic resistance. Let the plant work for us. And uh, disease is the exception. It's not the common condition for plants or for animals or humans. You look at all the pathogens and all, all the uh, potential problems that we could have with crops. We have over 2,000 bacteria, fungi, and viruses and nematodes that we need to be aware of and understand what their potential in damaging the crop uh, can be. But we rarely have more than just a few of them that, that we really have to focus on because we have genetic resistance within the plant to do that. Now, where we don't have resistance, and that's one of the things with Goss's weld on corn, that... Uh, uh, it's existed. We've known about it for about 50 years. It uh, occurred in about seven counties in eastern Nebraska and western Iowa, but never moved from those counties in any significant manner, any economic manner, uh, for 30 years until the GMO corn was introduced for insecticide production in the corn and also are for uh, resistance to the glyphosate Roundup herbicide. When we did that, in order to get those two genetic engineered uh, products, they had to go back to some very susceptible hybrids. And since the disease Gauss's wilt had never been a problem uh, outside of those few counties, it was was kind of a forgotten entity that then... Uh, with the loss of genetic resistance, became extremely severe problems for us, much as we see with that tar spot and and that also today. In a given field, let's say it's corn, why are all the corn plants literally genetically exactly the same? Or would it be better, would would it approximate some diversity if you, again, had genetically modified corn, but you have three different varieties of it in the same field and you intersperse them. Would that help at all? Or what could you do to, to, you know, mitigate the sameness that, you know, changes the attack surface and leaves them possibly very exposed to new pathogens or other ones? Oh, the uh, jury's still out on that one proposed. And actually we implemented that in the Cold War period because we knew that uh, just like Napoleon, uh, uh, documented that an army still moves on its stomach while a society still moves on a stomach, on its stomach too. In fact, agriculture is the basic 
infrastructure of any society. The efficiency of our agriculture is going to determine the uh, number of school teachers we have or the number of days vacation that someone's going to have in a, in a job. What we can do is still dependent on providing that basic food and necessities of life that come from agriculture. So if we don't pay attention to that, then we can get caught short and uh, everything else then suffers in our society. Got off track a little bit there, but it's it's critically important that we uh, look at our agricultural production efficiency uh, in order to maintain our societal relationships and that ecology of a society, how it interacts then with the ecology of crop production. That becomes very critical for us. And so disease pressure and disease reduction in that production efficiency is going to affect everything else that we can do. And that's why it's important that that we understand the, the relationships of of things that we do, whether it's in the breeding program to uh, maintain our disease resistance to some of these diseases that don't seem to be a problem today, but we release a new variety and, and haven't tested and screened for resistance to some of these minor diseases, as we refer to them, then they can come back and bite us pretty badly, as we've seen with Goss's welt our spot and with a number of our other other diseases there. So our breeding programs used to include many of the minor disease diseases or screening for them, focus more on the just the benefit and of particular techniques and we've tended to ignore or forget that there are also other entities out there that that can increase the stress and damage to the crop that need to be addressed and considered before we have a wide-scale release of just one or go adopt just one technique for production. And uh, you can trace most of our corn varieties back to, and any one year back to five or six germplasm sources and so it can be very susceptible or very we can be very vulnerable to either a natural or uh, an induced type of uh, disease outbreak an example of that would be the northern corn leaf blight epidemic in the 1970 and 71 period where we had moved uh, male sterility, Texas male sterility genetics into about 70% of all of our corn lines because it uh, made hybridization of those of our corn lines much easier. You didn't have to go in and hand uh, detassel to uh, get your hybrid. You could do that genetically with the Texas male sterile. Uh, genetics and then have a non-Texas male sterile uh, as your male line in that seed production and eliminate the, that cost and that time factor. Well, it turns out that we had a new mutant develop in one of our serious fungal pathogens, uh, northern corn leaf blight pathogen, and uh, 
Uh, it cost us uh, about 16% of our total yield that year and created an extreme shortage in corn for feed and other purposes. In fact, I can remember one of my research plots that I've sprayed fungicide on it six times in hopes that I could still recover the data from the other things that I was working on uh, because that disease became so severe for us. And uh, again, as soon as we went back and recognized that problem, went back to handy tasseling and removed the Texas Malcero, we were able to control that disease and pretty much eliminate it as a serious problem. It's, but we need to recognize that the interaction of the plant and the environment and the pathogens are very dynamic and you can't change one of them without changing the interaction of, of all of them. And so uh, rather than just focusing on the plant and the disease, we also need to include that environment and nutrition is a critical part of that environment because it affects both the pathogen and the the plants in that role. And so that's why I focus so much on the environment, uh, also the diseases that uh, I've been primarily involved with are diseases that we don't have good genetic resistance to to start with. So we need to address the cultural controls, use those parts of the toolbox, those tools, then to increase the nutritional availability and sufficiency in order to control those diseases. Very good. Uh, Don, what do you think is uh, is ahead for the future of, um, I guess you'd call it crop husbandry or just, you know, farming? I mean, what do you see as the future in the next few years? Any new interesting innovations coming up? Uh, I think uh, one of the really exciting things is what we refer to as agro agroecology where they're really focusing, going back and focusing more on on that ecological production of of our crops rather than just looking for silver bullets for each one of the stresses that happens to come along. We're running out of silver bullets is part of the problem, but what I see with the agroecology and the focus on that overall ecological involvement of those three factors as they interact, we're also seeing a very significant increase in nutrient density and overall performance of, of our crops so that we increase the sustainability in our crop production as well as the benefit and to society. So if you have healthy soils, you have healthy crops. And if you have healthy crops, you have healthy people. We focus more on quality, quantity of product than quality. And so with the movement to agroecology, we see that quality aspect then being increased uh, nutrient density, which is critical for uh, our animal production as well as for our people from a disease resistance, from an overall health and growth and performance capability, where our focus is really moving now. Well, very good. Don, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and your work and, and look at the things that you've done? Well, there are several uh, books that 
I've been involved in. One of them uh, been a bestseller now since 2007, since it was first published. And that's uh, Mineral Nutrition and Plant Disease. Lawrence Datnoff and Wade Elmer and I were editors on this. There are 25 chapters or so where we focused on the mineral nutrients and then all the diseases that were would be influenced by those that particular nutrient. That that book again has been a bestseller. It's published by the American Phytopath Society. It's undergoing revision, updating right now since 2007. Is there's been some new research and new ideas and approaches that can enhance that. It'll probably be another year or two before that update's completed. We have uh, a book that just came out. Uh, Charles Wilson and I co-edited. Again, it's the impact of synthetic pesticide use in Africa, impact on people, animals, and the environment. Book is published by the World Food Preservation Center. It's one of their book series and just came out here about a month ago on it, available again, looking at uh, from a pesticide or a, a chemical standpoint and looking at the alternatives that to minimize that negative aspect that we would have uh, from the synthetic pesticide use. So we're moving to the agroecology away from the uh, silver bullet approach in that. Another uh, book that I had a hand in, I'm not one of the editors on, but where uh, we had Tadashi Urinari in Brazil at Embrapa was a key uh, factor and a key player in uh, our being able to minimize soybean rust and also in maintaining soybeans as a viable crop in South America and Central America. And that's uh, the title of it is just Soybean Rust Lessons Learned from the Pandemic in Brazil. But Tadashi Yanari, Dr. Yanari, uh, as a graduate student uh, at the University of Illinois, picked up those skills in plant pathology and carried them, even though soybean rust wasn't a disease of, of importance, it was a potential threat to us. We were vulnerable, the world was vulnerable to it, and as soybeans became a major staple crop or staple item in many people's diets. We had a great reliance on uh, soybeans and this disease literally threatened to demolish that entire crop. Well, Tadashi was a critical individual in that uh, recovery and maintaining it. production efficiency in spite of this extremely damaging disease. And uh, this is Tadashi's chronicled uh, research and all the problems that you go through and all the accomplishments in overcoming those problems. When you have a new disease that requires major cultural changes and varietal changes in order to just keep it as a viable uh, commodity in, in the diet. That book, uh, published by the American Phytopath Society, is is a token to 
uh, Tadashi's persistence and his tremendous perception of how you manage this ecology. He developed a system and got the government uh, legislation and that implied to make sure that there was a break crop. In other words, you didn't plant three, three soybean crops every year in Brazil, but that you had a break period. Conditions were extremely conducive for this disease so that even your fungicides would have an opportunity to work and provide protection. Other sources would be uh, the scientific literature. I have uh, about 300 published articles and uh, experiment station bulletins, that type of uh, information. I've presented a number of of, uh, videos, lectures that are on the internet. So that those would be some of the sources that would be available if if they uh, wanted to go deeper in any of the any of the topics I've been involved with there. Very good. Well, Don, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I appreciate it. Well, Richard, thanks for this opportunity. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.